Hello and welcome to the Raising Athletes podcast, or maybe welcome back. We're so excited to have a very, very special guest, a personal, almost lifelong friend to me um, on today. But before we introduce her, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Kirsten Jones. I'm a peak performance and sports parenting coach. I love helping people figure out what's holding them back, figuring out how to release it and get it out of your way so you can move forward. I love doing this podcast with Susie Walton, who can't be here today, but we'll, I'll, I'll hold down the ship as best I can. But today's guest is Debbie Hill, who I had the privilege of playing for for two years at the College of William & Mary, which I guess I have just learned is now called William & Mary, right? <laughs> it's correct. <laughs> so welcome, Debbie Hill. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Always a pleasure to see you, of course. Yay. So... You know, I could go on and on. We could spend an hour just talking about the accolades of what Debbie accomplished in, you know, her 30, over 30 years as a coach at William & Mary. But let me just read off a few for those of you who are not up to speed. Um, she was the head coach there for over 30 years, five-time CAA Coach of the Year, the Colonial Athletic Association Coach of the Year, seven straight championships from 85 to 91, which I had the privilege of being a part of, a few of those, 56-match 56 winning streak during that time, and four players who were named CAA Player of the Year seven times. Uh, in 88, 89, 90, and 91, they went to the NIVC, which is basically the NIT for volleyball, for those of you who aren't familiar with that. But when I was thinking about having you on, Deb, I know that that's not what you would want to talk about, that that's not your priority in life. It's never been that you would spend, you would love to spend much more time talking about how proud you are of all the women that came in girls and left women and went on to do amazing things. Maybe you can even just list off a few. I know you'll, you won't, we don't have time to list what everybody's gone on to do, but some of the things that some of your graduates have gone on to do. Uh, U.S. Attorney General uh, on faculty at Stanford and neuro neurosurgery, uh, you know, fellow with the Bush Institute um, in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, National Coach of the Year, Division One and Division Three this year, attorneys, uh, physicians, teachers, stay-at-home moms, um, all incredible people. Amazing, right? So let's talk about, I want to take, for this is parents who are listening, it's mostly women, mostly moms who are on this journey with their athletes, with their kids, trying to figure this out. You know, it's a $20 billion industry now. It wasn't when I played. It wasn't, definitely wasn't when you played. So let's, maybe let's take a trip down memory lane a little bit, and then we'll get up to where we are today. But Title IX introduced in 1972. I was born in 1970. So I got, I had the benefit of of a lot of what you went through in order to uh, to grow and to play and to have a full ride to play in college. Right. Yeah. If I, if I look back and think about it, I, I graduated from junior college in 1972, and that was when Title IX passed. I went on to play uh, at a four-year university, uh, University of Houston after that. Um, it, so despite the fact that Title IX had been implemented, there were certainly no scholarships for women and there was no equity for women either. We, you know, uh, three teams shared one set of uniforms still. And, uh, and, and, you know, we used a little, uh, gym over in the alcove and our teachers, our coaches were very nice people. They were not, you know, they were not trained really in coaching. Uh, so 
you know, life, life change from then until now. I came to Hojet William and Mary in 76, and um, we had our first uh, Title IX scholarship athletes in the, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And, um, and it, was, uh, it was a bit of a dogfight every bit of the way, you know, uh, trying to improve the funding for the women's sports and the opportunities for, for the girls and the women's compared, women compared to the men. Um, and interesting title, interestingly, Title IX has had echoes at William & Mary. Um, in the 90s, the women in the late 80s, the women's basketball team, they tried to cut the women's basketball team rather ill-advised, obviously, and that, and they were, uh, they were filed with a Title IX suit and they had to, um, bring it back. And then, but it doesn't go away. Uh, echoes of that in the year 2000. Also, um, they try, the athletic administration tried to cut two sports, actually seven sports from William and Mary, and they were challenged by Title IX and, um, the decision was reversed. So it's a, it's a, it, we've come a long way, baby, but uh, we're definitely not, um, it, it, we have to be vigilant. We have to keep going. So how did you find William and Mary and how did, you know, from an, a, you got to Houston and then you got all the way out to Virginia long before the internet. How did that all come about? Right. Well, I, you know, I, like everybody else uh, of my age, I graduated from high school in 1970 and everybody then, at least in Southern, in Florida played everything. I mean, I, in college, I played varsity, badminton, volleyball, basketball, softball, and ran track. And that's what everybody did. Um, and then, and then, you know, all the good athletes at that time typically went to Florida State University because University of Florida didn't admit women. Um, but I wanted to go out of state. So uh, the coach at University of Houston had seen me play in the uh, national championship um, at, uh, Miami-Dade South and recruited me to come play volleyball at, uh, at, at Houston. So that's how I got there. And then I got my master's degree in Greensboro because you, I coached one year in middle school and decided that wasn't for me. I wanted to coach at the collegiate level. And then I found myself back at William and Mary after getting my master's degree in 1976. So you get there in 76 and, uh, you were able to, get girls. How do you, how do you recruit? Because you don't well, have- Yeah, we didn't recruit actually. No. Interestingly, this was, uh, it was back in a time when the men's and women's athletic departments and physical education departments were separate. The women coaches all coached more than one sport. So I, uh, was brought in to coach, uh, track and volleyball. And there were, uh, there were no, there was no recruiting. Um, people, young women applied and men applied to William and Mary to come to just go to school there. And then we had tryouts. That's this old fashioned thing that you've probably heard out. Now it starts, you know, at four, four year olds, but we had tryouts in college for, to see just whoever wanted to come and, and, and play the game. And that's, you know, and then from there, little bit by little bit, every year after that, um, I would get letters from people. Of course, there was no internet it was all letters and saying, Oh, you know, I'd like to, I'm, I, I might be coming and I'd like to think about volleyball and I would be in touch with them. So it was a, it was a gradual transition over the years to the point now where, you know, the, when I retired, the volleyball program had 12 full scholarships and we were fully funded to, you know, fly around the country and go recruiting and, and, and actually do recruiting. And when I first started coaching, recruiting was uh, 0% of my job. And when I ended, it was probably 75% of my job. So there's the transition. 
Yeah, uh, really huge growth because I think even when I was there in uh, 90, 91, 92, 92, 93, um, you only had seven scholarships, so you weren't fully funded even then. No, right? it was a while before that happened, right? Yeah. So um, when did Millie West, so one of your mentors, maybe you could talk about Millie a little bit, because again, as we've, we all know, and I know you lo love this term, which is we all stand on the shoulders of the women before us. And I truly believe that. And I feel like I hope that my daughter can stand on my shoulders too. So maybe you could talk about one of your, who one of your biggest influences was in your life from that perspective. Sure. Billy West was a, a, a true little um, Southern belle from Georgia, and she was about five foot even, maybe 89 pounds, and everything was, she was always perfectly dressed and perfectly well-spoken. And, um, and she, but she was fierce. She was fierce. She was a fighter. And uh, it, you learned very quickly that you did not tell Millie West no. And if she set her mind to something, um, you know, it was going to happen. And what she set her mind to was bringing the women's athletic department up to be more equal with the men. And uh, so she uh, did that by force of will. She did that using Title IX uh, as a tool. Um, and she did that just because uh, she was a, a powerful woman in a place where, you know, she was never named the athletic director. She was only the associate athletic director and she was the women's athletic director. Um, but but she wielded a lot of power uh, uh, across uh, across campus and did some tremendous things uh, for, for the athletes, for sure. And for you personally, what did you learn from her? What did you take from her as a leader? Oh, gosh. Well, I, you know, I came to Wayne Mary at age 24 and I was a hot mess. I didn't know anything, uh, certainly didn't know anything about coaching in college, didn't know anything about a place that is such a fine academic institution as Wayne Mary. So um, she taught me up. You know, I learned a lot from her. I learned, you know, I learned budgets. I learned correspondence. I learned uh, responsibility. I learned, you know, being absolutely always on time, you didn't want to incur her wrath, and 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 then over time, you know, you grow as a, as a person. At the time, some of my players were just two years younger than I was, so you know, it was not exactly the blind leading the blind, but it was. Uh, I, I had a learning curve, and she uh, she and the other older women in the department were all mentors to me, but especially Millie. We kind of touched on this at the opening, but. In your own words, what would you say your coaching legacy is? Oh, people. It's a, that's a very simple one word answer. It's, it's about the people and it's about the relationships that I still have with um, all of the women. You know, I'm in touch with the vast majority of the women who played volleyball in the 30 years that I was here. And, um, you know, if I get any stars in my crown when I, you know, after I'm gone, it's going to be the the players, you know, that came through our program as, you know, eager, athletic, ready to go young women. I mean, young girls really and graduated as these fully functioning, incredibly talented and um, ready to go women charging out into the world to change things. So my, my legacy is definitely uh, the, the women that I coached and the successes that they now have in life, not just because of me, but because, of course, obviously of William and Mary, because the kind of place this is and because athletics changes you, particularly as a female.
you get stronger, you get more driven, you're less willing to take no for an answer. And um, it's just a very powerful influence in girls and women's sports. Very empowering too, right? Like, it's, oh, yeah, absolutely. It gives right. you the courage to say, I'm going to go for it and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, that's okay. I'm going to pick myself up and do that all over again too. Right. You know, understanding that you, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And you make a mistake and then how, how do you do it better? How do you get up? Which is the, that's a real world thing. It's not just about volleyball. Do you feel like it's shifted? I mean, I know this is on an individual basis, but my perception and raising three athletes myself now is because there's so much pressure to win for these coaches, you can't blame them, but there you can tell the weight of the world is on their shoulders that there feels in a lot of cases, coaches don't give you the green light to just go for it because I can't afford for you to make mistakes. I need to get the W because that my contract depends on it. Have you seen that evolve over oh, the years? Yes, of course. And, and the thing is, it's not, you know, it's, it's the, the wins and W's, but the wins and losses, but it's also, you know, the person's career. And, you know, I, I coached here for, I was here for 30, 30 years. And, and my mantra was always, well, as long as my players are graduating, they're good students and they're happy and we win more than we lose, I'm going to be fine. And that was the truth. And that is most certainly not the case now. I've seen a big change. And I, um, you know, that, that train is probably way out of the station, but, uh, um, I do have a lot of sympathy for uh, the people who coach now, men and women, um, and the athletes themselves. And, you know, do the athletes have the grace to, can the coach give them the grace to, uh, you know, make a mistake and learn from that mistake? It's, a, it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. And that's really what, why we started this podcast and why I do what I do, which is trying to help parents because we all can't stand to see our kid not succeed, right? And we're all doing the best we can. I don't think any parent sets out to like, I'm going to screw up my kid. At the same time, having that inner voice of they've got this, they can figure this out. I've given them the tools. They're now, particularly when they get to the college age, right? Like how much nowadays, speaking to Julie Shackford, like how much do you have the parents coming and talking to you, which seems crazy, but it's the reality, right? I was at Nike and I had parents call me and... <laughs> want to get involved in their kid and they were off in the corporate world. So yeah, the tools to be successful. I, mm -hmm. yeah, huge. Yeah. I think that, that it's, it's incumbent upon the coach to set limits to that. I mean, uh, you know, you're not going to get a fifth grader who has, you know, the, uh, the nerve or the capacity to challenge a coach about what's happening. But, you know, by the time the kids are in high school, you're hoping that they are, um, they have the tools to actually speak to a coach themselves. Um, and certainly by the time they're in college, uh, you, you know, I, I had a hard and fast rule. I will never discuss anything about the volleyball program um, with a parent. Uh, I will discuss anything about the volleyball program with a player including playing time or, you know, what their treatment is like or anything like that. But um, it, it was always a hard no. I will not discuss that, uh, you know, those issues um, with a parent. And so, therefore, when your child is in junior high school and high school, I'm telling you down the road, your child is going to be in this situation. So do not uh, take that away from them 
encourage them, help them grow, give them the words to speak to a coach to say, not why aren't I seeing more playing time, but what do I need to improve in? And that's a, that's a very soft ask. Like, you know, any, any middle schooler can say that to a coach or what can I do better coach? And so as a parent, we want to encourage the, um, our, our young athletes to have the agency to be able to do that. I love um, role-playing with them too. Like ah. if you don't feel like they have the words, then like, let's practice. I'm coach. You're you like how, and it really does help them like formulate the words. And even if you have to do it three, four, five, six times, it's the same as going to ask the teacher for, you know, you got the 89, nine and you want, want the a, you know, how are you advocating for yourself in the classroom? How are you advocating for yourself when you get that first job, the same skill set, right? A very powerful tool that um, we really, you know, it will do us well to uh, let our, our young people you know, develop those tools for sure. Yeah. All right. So let's transition. You had an amazing, um, well-deserved honor this year that was given out to, I think, 15 women. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, so the NC2A, the entire NC2A went and looked at who, who were the who are the godmothers of volleyball? Who were the ones that really helped put volleyball on the map? And right now, Volleyball is going through the roof. There's been a huge increase in we. I mean, I know the club that I coach for and work with. They have over 500 girls in the club right now, and that's up. It's gone up exponentially. Not just because of COVID either. I think for just mm. the, the support mm -hmm. and the love and watching matches on ESPN, right? Like Imagine yeah. pulled out crowds, right? So look how far we've come, baby, right? Like things are going in that direction. So could you tell our audience about um, what happened at, at the Final Four in Omaha this year? Sure, it was really, uh, it was definitely a highlight. It was amazing. They, they you know, there, there would be hundreds of women who could be called godmothers of volleyball, but they wanted to, it was the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Again, echoes of this very important legislation. How do we honor the women that brought us through Title IX? Um, and, and not that we're even necessarily movers and shakers, but that just lived through it. And uh, the way they decided to do that was to choose 15 people and they honored us as the godmothers of volleyball. And uh, it was it was it was very, very meaningful. They um, they chose 15 young women who are in college and want to be uh, college coaches afterwards. And they paired us with them and asked us to give them a piece of advice um, in, in between the second and third set of the second semifinal. They had us all out there on the baseline. The women were on young women were on the other side. We walked to the net, handed over this piece of advice to them, symbolically handing over, you know, the baton, carry on the Title IX effort. And there were, uh, you know, these uh, promotions that they do between games. You're out getting popcorn. You're wandering around. You're not paying. There were 18,000 people in that arena, and every woman whose name was spoken there was a roar. It was, there, there was such engagement. The volleyball crowd knows the history of our sport. They know title nine and they were so appreciative. It was a, it was a, it was a brilliant moment. And of course, you know, one of your teammates, Jennifer Petrie had her team in the semifinal Amazing. Um, and was named coach of the year. So it was a, uh, Oh yes, it was a highlight. It was definitely a highlight. <laughs> 
Do you remember what you wrote on that piece of paper? I'm dying to know. Be true to yourself. Uh-huh. Be true to your, be who you are. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. And that if you are authentically yourself, I wrote this down. If you are authentically yourself, your, your players will always respect you. If you are not authentically yourself, they will know it and they will not respect you. Mm. So respect to be gained from, uh, you know, from your athletes um, starts with how you present yourself and how authentic you are. So on that, which is such a valid point, right? But as a parent who's trying to help their kid land, let's say the parent, there's a few parents on here who are going to be able to get their daughter to play it. The mm-hmm. one D2, D3, NAIA, sure. any next level. Right. How do you scream for that. How do you help your kid figure out if that coach has what they say they have? That, um, you're going to be such a rich woman when you find out <laughs> the answer to that question. We'll split it. Okay. I think you, I think you observe in the same way that as a coach, when I'm recruiting athletes, I'm on the floor. And uh, one of the first things I do is watch how a young person relates to her parents. Mm. So are you snapping at your mom to go get your water bottle or are you running to get it yourself? So it's easy then to flip that coin and have the athlete, or the parent, watch the coach. How am I respectful to people? Do I do I um, dismiss people? Am I in a conversation with a recruit, but my eyes are over her shoulder looking at that other recruit over there? Um, and and I don't think there is an easy answer to that Kirsten, but I think uh, I I think that um, you have to look carefully to see if people are genuine. Yeah. And I think it's interesting having gone through it myself twice because I transferred to William Mary right. and now with two sons who are playing in college and now my daughter, right. of course, uh, and, and having even dated, like I, I correlate it to dating and to getting married. Right. So when you're dating someone, what are you screening for? What are you looking for in a partner? What are you looking for in a friend? Right. So, and sometimes we need to learn from the you know, lesson of hard knocks about what are our values? And one of the things I like to tell recruits is look at, look at, if you could write down what your values are, mm-hmm. one to 10, and maybe mm-hmm. ten, nine and 10 are like, okay, it would be nice to have, but you know, mm-hmm. but if my highest value is that this person will back me up no matter what, mm-hmm. then that will help shift. Okay. Well, this team wins, you know, and that's, I think what kids do. Oh, they're winning. They're going to win the conference. Like mm-hmm. and of course that's sexy. And of course, nobody wants to sign up for a losing team, mm-hmm. but be on a team where you know that that coach has your back regardless of the day's outcome, right? It's, and that's, again, hard for an 18-year-old to screen for. But parents, you can be looking for the trust factor and the, you know, integrity factor and the the helping them build the tools they want. And then the broken leg test. Like, if they're there, oh, yeah. volleyball doesn't go very well, do they want to be there, right? Like, a lot of kids are like, oh, I don't care. It's... You know, it's this and this and this. And then as soon as volleyball's out of the picture, for whatever reason, I hate it here. And this wasn't my choice. And my parents wanted me to come here. You're miserable, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that was always, you know, would I always said to my recruits, would you be here if you didn't play volleyball? Mm-hmm. If you didn't play a sport, would you consider this university? And that's the broken leg test. Exactly what you're talking about. 
The other thing that I think it's important is um, some coaches are able to convey that they really care more about the player as a person than mm-hmm. as a player. Mm-hmm. So I, we tried to create an environment where, where our athletes knew that who they were was more important than how many kills they could get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you translate that in youth sports? Uh, is there attention paid to um, trying to make sure everybody gets some playing time or at least in drills? Because that's just soul sucking mm-hmm. to sit a bench and never play or even be in the active drills on, on, on six on six. Um, one of the one of the unfortunate sidelines of, of Title IX has been uh, uh, squad stacking so that some places are having to carry heavier squad numbers. And so if you're going to play on a club team with 25 kids on it, do the math. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you need to look at those kinds of things, too. Yeah, I'm afraid that's a lot of what club sports is being. So just like college coaches, the clubs want to win. They need the records in order to pay the bills. So they're going to try to play the best players, which, of course, you can't blame them. But you got to, in my opinion, need to develop all the players. Like if these people are paying all the money and showing up at every practice and traveling to fight, you know, and investing, again, for, forget even the money, but just the time and the, what they're signing up for is development. And if you're developing every player from, Z up to Y, like that's a win, you know, but it's really easy to focus on those that are, they're already A plus students. They're already at the top of the pack. And I get it. It it is more fun to coach those ones, I'm sure, because it's just, it's easy. You don't really have to do much, but real coaches are the John Woodmans of the, you know, of the world, are the Debbie Hills of the world that played everybody that, you know, developed everybody, not played everybody, but developed everybody from where they were and, and that's why I believe your legacy is about the people because people who feel like, well, she didn't play me anyway and she was mean to me and she never you know, supported me in anything else. They don't bother giving back to the college, but the ones who say, you know what? Okay. It wasn't the star. In fact, they probably barely even got on the floor. I can't remember, but man, what an amazing support network work. She helped me, you know, grow. One hundred percent, Kirsten. You know, I, I can I could tell you so many stories of women who walked on at William and Mary, begged, could they please just be on the team? And some of those women made tremendous contributions, both on and off the floor. And I'm I'm so close with many of those people. And you know, the the five three kid who as it turns out, could out jump the six one middle blocker and and was just such a fire plug on the floor, brought such energy. So I think I think coaches do themselves and their players a real disservice when they don't look to um to find the hidden talents of every single player on their team and to develop them. That's that's your responsibility as a coach. You must do that. If you take on this job, you must develop everybody on your team. There's a great book I read last year about um, the greatest leaders in sports history, and they had to have won four national or world championship titles. So it was like cricket to rugby to like every sport in between. And the most fascinating thing was he came up with 16 different leadership qualities 
Not everybody is the alpha who wants to be the captain, right? And we associate leadership with being the alpha, with being the one who got all the accolades, who's winning all the trophies, who's the household name. But even right. like on the women's national soccer team, the woman who did carried all the water, as they call it, right? Like was yeah. the one that was behind the scenes, but she was the backbone for the team. When they won the World Cup, she didn't even show up to the world to the White House. She's like, I gotta do my laundry. Because that wasn't important to her. That was not how she valued her contribution. And good but she was the glue. She yes. was the glue. Yeah. But great coaches know that. And they know that the five three girl who isn't gonna, you know, get a ton of playing time, but I need her all in because she's gonna make everybody else better. Yeah, and I think you look for a coach that that that, that is gonna value that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Amazing. All right. So fun to have you on and I will let you go. But before I do, at the end with the one question we love to ask everybody, um, and you can take this in any direction you like, but the best athletes I know do this. How would you end that? Well, they're passionate about their sport. They love to play the game. They're not playing because their parents want them to or because they think they can get a scholarship, but they're passionate about the sport. Um, they want to learn. They're eager to improve. That's number two. And then a, a very important thing I think we sometimes lose sight of is that uh, I want an athlete who is willing to take responsibility for her actions. Mm, so if you, if you don't work hard every, every day in practice, don't blame somebody else. Take responsibility for your actions. Love that. So good. And, and good reminder for us all, right? It's easy to oh, point fingers. Of course. Right. That's not my fault. And that's not my fault. And they did that. And he did that to me. No. What do I own in this? What, what culpability and accountability do I have? And what, what that's where things are going to change. When I change then the results. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one last thing, competitive. Yeah. Like there was this kid, Kirsten Shemke Jones, <laughs> who would rather take your head off than let you take advantage of her on the volleyball court. So you do have to have a fire in the gut. That's for sure. And it's, it doesn't go away. Right. Like it's one of those things like even, and I get it right. Parents like I, I, it's hard for me. I have to get up and walk away. I sit on my hands. Oh, oh. Volume down now because like <laughs> I still want to win. <laughs> now I'm, I teach what I need to learn. So, you know, I'm hopefully model it better than, than I feel it on the inside. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on, Deborah. That was great fun. Yay. And finally, parents, if you've enjoyed this episode and know another sports parent who, who is trying to get better at supporting their athlete, please feel free to rate and share this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And like parents, we at Raising Athletes are trying to do better every podcast. Like we just added video. So we're so excited. Our goal is your feedback and likes will help us move this along. So keep them coming. Also, some great news I found out yesterday. My book is already up on Amazon for pre-sale. So go on to Amazon. And I think it's going to be on other things too, but I don't know yet. Uh, hashtag raising or sorry, raising empowered athletes on Amazon. Uh, it's launching August 8th but it's available for pre-sale now. So go buy it now. Um, our goal is to support parents, not only raising strong athletes, but much more importantly, extraordinary people who are trying new things, failing forward, getting up and doing it all over again. Let's do this. <laughs>